Just a heads up before we start this episode, this story discusses some heavy topics including organ donation and losing a loved one. If you or someone you know needs help or someone to speak with, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And I guess I, I really urge people to please, if it's right for you, register, be an organ donor. You don't know what you can do. And, you know, and it isn't just me that's helped by that one person. You, know, you can help up like hundreds of people. This is Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Sky Manson, your host for this episode. Today's guest is Heidi Castledon from Hovels Creek, New Burrowa in southern New South Wales. On two occasions, an organ donated from a stranger has saved Heidi's life. The first time was when she was just 15 years old and the second was when she was 31. At 15 years of age, after years and years of unsolved medical ailments, Heidi received a diagnosis of a rare congenital liver disease. She was told she would need a transplant in 5 to 10 years, but the need came much quicker. Since this point, Heidi's life has been spent managing, waiting and overcoming a myriad of health setbacks for herself and her family. But not for one moment will she be defined by this. In fact, she told me that some of her friends might be surprised to hear the finer details of her story. Also, it so happens that this week is Organ Donation Week in Australia, the week in which we are all encouraged to speak with our loved ones about organ donation and to register if that's what we decide to do. We'll tell you more detail about this at the end of the program, but for now, let's meet Heidi, fiercely courageous in the most modest way possible. We start back in her childhood days. To me, I would say just a regular happy childhood, um, possibly more eventful and not so normal, but then, you know, I guess everybody's probably is and you just don't know. Mum was a nurse, um, dad was a minister and, yeah, we were just brought up, you know, we always had people around, always had other people, other people in our home, which looking back as a child you realise, oh, they were people that, you know, mum and dad were caring for or helping or looking after or, you know, assisting in some way. But as a kid you just, oh, yeah, this, you know, it's people, oh, yeah, this person's here for dinner and it was just part of our lives. That's how things were in our house. Um, you know, it's a very open, welcoming place that, yeah, always had room for anybody and, yeah, a happy, welcoming, safe place, I guess. Like, look, yeah, in hindsight, looking back on it, um, you know, with grown-up eyes, you realise that, that, you know, that's what your parents were creating and um, that was who they were. That's so beautiful. So it really was like a kind of very open door house, come whenever you need to, you're always welcome here kind of feeling amongst the fact that there were five children. But I, I don't know, I, I guess I look at it, you know, you've got five, you might as well have more. <laughs> you know, Growing up as a child and going through school and things like that, did you have any dreams of what you or any ideas as to what you wanted to become? 
I did. I think I um I always always done creative things. I've you know been sewing since I was six years old, and you know, mum was a nurse, but she was also she was always sewing or making something, or you know, if we had school play or all the ballet concerts, she was making costumes and um you know, and as you know, um, there's four of us girls, so we were always dressing up and making things and you know fashion parade contests at school like the garbage garbage bag fashion parade at school yeah that's a good memory of you know we're all making our outfits and haute couture out of garbage bags and <laughs> that sort of thing so always always creating things um and and probably working something with people I you know was really interested I'm interested in psychology and understanding people and understanding how things worked and why and um and so I did go on to study psychology later at uni obviously didn't go anywhere with that either Mm -hmm. (laughs) I ended up anywhere near that um but yeah I guess something creative and something with people was sort of where I guess I was always headed and although your father was a minister and your mum was a nurse it sounds to me like there was a tremendous creative streak running through your family. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think on on both sides, mum and dad, like, you know, dad uh, cooked and, you know, came up with strange recipes and, you know, he would make our lunches quite often when mum was doing night shift and, you know, doing her, you know, um, weird nursing hours, dad would make the lunch and you know you'd get surprises in your lunchbox creative sandwich fillings and and things like that and you just wanted white bread and Vegemite but <laughs> you had grated carrot and sultanas on brown bread which is about now that was you know I would prefer that now um but yeah so no but, um yeah and, and I think all of us all of us kids definitely have and you know even when we've you know worked in a very you know, conventional sort of jobs we've all done something creative on the side Mm, I love that. Um, so your journey to where you are now has been quite a huge one. Tell, tell me, I think probably the best place for us to start is that when you were a teenager, when you were um, 15, there was a, a diagnosis of some sort. What, what happened there? And um... Yeah, so as a child, I sort of generally like had had some health issues and, you know, was it food allergies? Was it this, that? Um, I never could really get an answer. And, you know, mum, obviously being medically knowledgeable, would just, you know, continue to take me back to the doctor, know something isn't right. Um, a, a nurse and B, the five children, I know, know that there's something not right here. Um, and it wasn't until I was 15, started becoming quite unwell um, and having these episodes of just, you know, huge amounts of pain and vomiting and just very unwell, but awful details, but um, and ending up in hospital. And, and this went on for sort of probably, it was probably 12 months until we got a diagnosis, which was quite um, fortuitous when it happened that I was taken to hospital one night and the, um, the doctor on call happened to be a, a specialist that had just recently been reading and looking into this condition and said, oh, hey, why don't we check this out? Um, and, you know, it's really rare. 2% of the population, majority of those are, are well into their 70s, 80s, um, so not something you'd look for in a otherwise well and healthy 15, 16-year-old. Um but he, but you know, so we'll try to 
everything else, let's check it out. And um, it turned out that I had um, a liver disease, which was a congenital, so born with it, but manifests later on, um, that just grew scar tissue within the liver, basically blocking it up. Um, and that had been slowly happening, which is why it sort of had periods of unwellness um, that had slowly built up. And then by that stage, the blockages were obviously becoming more uh, of an issue. So I was becoming, yeah, having those more severe episodes of being unwell. And, um, and yeah, so suddenly then out of, you know, looking, is it uh, this, is it that, is it, you know, food, is it whatever, to suddenly it's a liver disease and it's an incurable liver disease and the only thing for this is to have a liver transplant, um, which is pretty major. Um, and when you were a 15 year old and you're, you know, just sort of trying to figure yourself out to start with, to be told you've got an incurable disease, the cure or the only way you are going to survive it is this huge major surgery, the largest operation they do on a human. Um, and you've got to wait for someone else to die to give you their body part so you can live. And it's a pretty, um, pretty big one for a mm. <laughs> for a teenage brain to mm. to um to comprehend so what happened at that point you were obviously at school and how did your parents like lead you through that initial kind of traumatic time did they take you out of school for a while and just well take a I think to soak it all in no I think and this is again just the way that the way that we are life continues you know I'm I'm the youngest of five I'm not the only child there that you know can let's drop everything and here's this thing and and also not in a way of oh okay well let's just get on with it it's like okay well now this is part of our life now we do this we've still got to try and you know look after all these other children because they're all, all teenagers too and it impacts obviously impacts the whole family you know mum and dad are still working and um yeah so it was very much, it just became part of our lives. Was there any sense of relief? Uh, yes and no. It was that, that yes, it was good to know, but it was still, still reasonably unknown because, you know, at the time they said, okay, well, you know, it's, it's going to be a long time until you're needing to have a transplant. It's, you know. It's a very slow progressing thing. Um, you're going to have this up and down, unwell, well, all these things are going to happen, but it's a long road, um, but it wasn't a long road. Um, so it was all very unknown because within five years I'd had my first transplant and, you know, that wasn't supposed to happen for 15, 20 years. Mm. Um, so, yes, it was, a re- it was a relief and good to know what we were dealing with, but it opened up this whole world of what we had to deal with then. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure that real relief actually was a part of it. It was just like, oh, now we're going to do this. Yeah. And what's the next, to the, to the next step? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, very pragmatic, very um, stoic in the sense that um, it wasn't painted as a, oh, this is so dreadful. It was just like, okay, we do this. Did you tell your friends? Yes, yes, I um, I did. Well, I mean, they they just knew it was wasn't a sit down and tell you. I'd been sick for so long on and off that 
it was everybody knew. And, um, and when you look fine and you have a chronic illness, it's really hard mm. because you look fine. It's like, well, you don't look sick because the days that you do look sick, you don't see anyone, you stay home. Um, so, and particularly as a kid, you don't want to look sick and you don't want to be the sick kid. So you, and you try and keep up and you can't. Um, and that then gets very hard. So, um, you know, I had had some really, really good close friends that, you know, really understood and were really supportive. And you know, they were teenagers too. It was in, essentially, it's a terminal illness. Unless you get a transplant, it's terminal. Um, but I don't think you think like that as a kid. So what happened from that point onwards? Um, did you get better? Like did, did things improve for you or did they get worse before they got better? Uh, they definitely got worse before they got better. Um, so as I said, I was about five years um, until I had that first transplant and it got very, very, very bad. The The first transplant that I had was I was very, very, very sick when I had that and um, very came very close to not surviving that. Um, that looks like not eating, not sleeping, but not getting out of bed, um, being extremely yellow, being very just a lot of pain. So the, when the scar tissue grows, it causes a lot of inflammation and irritation in the liver and it's extremely painful. Um, it looks like a lot of medications um, and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of waiting. And um, I guess that that's one big, big thing that I think was probably the most difficult and has always been the most difficult is the waiting um, and the uncertainty because you can't do anything about it and you can't think too much about it because if you do, you realise you're waiting for someone else to die. They're not going to die because of you or for you they're going to die through whatever circumstances are going to happen those circumstances need to happen for you to live and um that's also a pretty curly one to wrap your head around and yeah and that gets pretty difficult when you're feeling pretty terrible yeah you have a lot of time to think about it Mm. and um and it gets really hard what happened with your schooling did you finish school or did you um, drop out? Did, were you forced to drop out? Um, so year 10, I stopped, um, I think, so somewhere in the first term, um, stopped going to school. Um, and then I did pick it up again the next year, went back and did year 10 again. Um, I didn't, when did I, I went to uni quite late because I then had, I had that transplant when I was 20. So obviously, I'm not going to uni and doing all of those things that you do when you finish school then. Um, <clears throat> those years were pretty rough and following that transplant, I was was still unwell for quite some time. I was at the stage, they just needed to get me an organ that was going to work and it wasn't the best match, it wasn't the best fit and so I did have quite some period of unwellness afterwards um, but did eventually come good and got you know, 16 years out of that transplanted organ which is pretty incredible so was the beginning of university the beginning of the new Heidi for a while like yes and no you know I did a lot of things um in 
you know, in the 16 years following that transplant, you know, including including studying, um, you know, I travelled and you know, worked a whole lot of different jobs um, and pretty much just I really did just enjoy my life and um, probably not a conscious thought of, oh, I've been given this, I must do everything and I must, but looking back on it in hindsight, possibly that was that was my motivation or my drive was that, um, you know, I have this, I've been given this, I've got to use it. Also, the fact that you weren't in pain anymore and you were healthier and that you... Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I was playing sport, exercising, uh, going to Europe and going snowboarding, doing things that I never, never imagined I could do when, you know, you are in a hospital bed and you can't get yourself to the bathroom. You don't think that you're going to be on a snowboard in the Austrian Alps one day. That's just not in your realm. But I've done all of those things and the simple thing is because somebody else said, yes, you can have this and gave it to me. That's the only reason. And then it was mine to go, okay, I've got this, I've got to go. So what happened after that? You went to university and um, was it at about this time that you met your husband? So I met James in 2011 and a lot, a lot had happened in my life by the time I met him, 31 or 32 or something. I was living in Wagga, uh, he was living in Cowra. We, um, yeah, I was, was, I was 100% healthy, working full-time, travelling, just living, living and, and, um, and kind of not forgetting but my health wasn't a factor because um, for a lot of years it wasn't and just enjoying life. And, um, yeah, I met James and that was all really good. I, you know, I'd lost mum the year before and... Um, and I, we'd been seeing each other for a few months and I told him about, you know, my health history, that this is what's happened, this is just, it's not, not a big deal, but it, this is just who I am and it's just I've had all these health issues and, you know, perhaps one day down the track there may be other issues and I might need another transplant one day, but, you know, I'm pretty good. I can't see that happening. Nobody's expecting that. And within two months of saying that to him, um, that, don't worry about it. Um, I was back on the transplant list. Yeah, I'd had a just a sudden massive uh, rejection, which is so when the the donor organ is in your body, obviously, and you take uh, immune suppression medic- medication, um, so that um, your body accepts the organ and doesn't attack it and destroy it, but you can reject it any time and there is nothing you can do about it and there's no rhyme or reason. It can just happen. And so, yeah, after 16 years of um, my body just went, yeah, nah, um, you're out. And I got very, very sick very, very quickly. And I knew, I knew what that meant and I knew what was ahead and I knew it was going to be rough and I knew that the second time around is even harder and there's even less guarantees because, you know, your body inside has been, you know, and I'd had several other major surgeries in the meantime and um, it was going to be really difficult. And 
my chance of survival was even less and and that was assuming I did get get a second liver in time um and so I pretty much said to him look you know I know this is good but it hasn't been that long I know what's coming um I'd probably get out if I was you because you're in for a bit of a ride (laughs) and um and he just said well if you're gonna go through it isn't it better that you go through it with me than on your own and um yeah what do you say what do you say to that Mm -hmm. um and you know what 10 11 years later he's still here and so am I (laughs) Just taking a quick break from Heidi's story with a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Antola Trading. Based in Outback, Queensland, this entire female-owned and run business is known for its stylishly designed work shirts for men, women and children. They're the shirts you've always wanted with the features you've always needed – like longer sleeves to keep you covered from the sun, pockets that fit your smartphone, and beautiful 100% Australian brushed cotton that is soft from day one. There's a story behind every limited edition shirt because Antola Trading believe in producing the highest quality products, as well as promoting the amazing men, women and kids on the land that they are created for. The newly released collection ranges from plain colours with contrasting collars and cuffs to more unique florals, watercolour cockatoos and ever-popular ginghams and, of course, classic stripes and spots. Head to antolatrading.com. That's A-N-T-O-L-A. Or follow the link in our show notes to see the newest collection available now. Once these limited edition shirts are gone, they'll never be reprinted. So jump online before your favourite sells out. Just to rewind a tiny bit, you had lost your mum. And that was Mm. another humongous thing for you. So, so tell me about that. And also something that um, came as as um, a bit of a, as a bit of a shock. Tell me what happened. Uh, yeah, 2010, um, you know, living life, um, everything was going along well. Um, yeah, you know, one of those times in life where everything's just great. I went went on a trip to the South Pacific with a girlfriend of mine um, for 10 days and we'd been to a family wedding the weekend before I left and, yeah, just Right, and we've got photos from that wedding and it's just, um, you know, mum looks amazing and happy and her usual beautiful, warm, happy, easy self. So, and then went on this trip and came back 10 days later and I had supposed to, I was coming back and getting back to Sydney and I was going to have a few days with mum because she had a work thing in Sydney so we'd booked a hotel, I was going to have a few extra days and we were just going to hang out in Sydney for a couple of days and and I had it had been a bit weird while I was away. There hadn't been much contact while I'm in the South Pacific, you know, of course, not a big deal. Um, and then I had a message from Angela saying she would meet me in Sydney and pick me up. I was like, oh, oh, that's nice. She wants to come pick me up. And um, she had a friend of hers with her, you know, a close friend of both of ours and, you know, met me and picked me up. It was really lovely and we went out for breakfast and I'm completely unaware and I 
kept trying to ring mum and dad because, you know, I was back in the country and first in June ring home and, um, and I couldn't get on to mum or dad, which I thought was a bit weird and, you know, we're at the breakfast table and, and Angelo's watching me <laughs> trying to ring mum and dad and just not saying anything. And I just, you know, you're in a whatever, you're not thinking anything. Anyway, we're going back to the um, back to the hotel and sitting at the monorail staying at the Goldsborough in Darling Harbour and we're at the monorail station waiting for the monorail and um, and just she was obviously she was there to tell me and told me that, um, that yeah, mum had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer while I was away. Um, so I was 10 days behind everybody else. Uh, which I obviously completely understood because I couldn't have come home early and it would have been, yeah, just would have been devastating um, to be stuck there on my own. Um, and, yeah, and that they'd given her two months. And, and the last I'd seen her, we were at a wedding and she was dressed up and looking beautiful and laughing. And um, and then, yeah, I'm, Angela's telling me sitting at this monorail station that, She's got two months and it just didn't, it didn't compute because dad has the one, he's the one that had health issues. He's had various cancers. He's had five bypasses. He's, you know, mum's always fine mm-hmm. and mum is always fine because, you know, mum carries everybody and everything and um, and it just didn't compute. That can't be right. Anyway, and by this stage she was already in hospital and, um it had, it, I don't know if it's like a, a psychological thing that she'd gone to the doctor feeling unwell, bit of a sore back, noticed a bit of, you know, bloating or swelling around her tummy, but she was 62 and she'd gone into a more of a, you know, managerial position where she's sitting a lot during the day and so she's thinking, well, gained a bit of weight, slowing down, tired, it's my age, it's normal. Yeah, we went to the doctor with these sort of few very general health issues and came out with a, a terminal diagnosis and, and months. So it was, yeah, it was a huge shock. And, and yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if it's a psychological thing that once you recognise and acknowledge it, she just went downhill like very, very quickly. So by the time I got home um, 10 days later, um she was was in a really bad way and um, then after Angela had left, got a call that um, mum has been transferred to Sydney and nobody could go with her in the ambulance, the air ambulance, no one could go with her and I had to meet her at the hospital. And we hadn't spoken because I couldn't speak to her on the phone um and afterwards we laughed about it and she's like I couldn't talk to you either I didn't know what to say and because how do you you can't just talk on the phone how are you going how's your trip how are you feeling like you can't do that so I was told to wait for her at Royal Women's she'd be coming in an ambulance they didn't know when she would get there so I sat outside in the ambulance bay for hours and they had said we don't know what state she'll be and when she gets there we don't know if she'll survive so so I'm sitting in the ambulance bay waiting for this ambulance to arrive and not knowing what is what I'm going to see when those doors open and um actually did did survive that trip and um and yeah it was one of those moments you know when you 
I was so, you know, terrified. But as soon as I saw her face, she was a mum. She was mum. So it was okay. And she's assuring me that it's going to be okay. Um, what a moment. And like what a moment for, I'm sure, do you still draw on that moment now? Yeah. It's, it, that one's fairly etched in there. Um, and it also now as a mum, it's that you understand that that responsibility and just that intrinsic essence of being the mum is that the mum makes everything okay. You know, and I think about that now with my little girl that I will always be there. You know, if she is upset, I will be there. If she cries in the night, I will be there. And, you know, if whether it's trivial or it's huge, if she can see me or hold my hand, I, I can do that for her. And that's obviously in my, in my life because mum was my nurse for a very long time. Um, I've had a lot of those moments, but that moment was is definitely a, um, yeah, one of those ones where you, you understand your role as the mum and how important that is. Mm. And also in, you know, what a gift she gave you as a nurse and especially you, like Mm. having nursed you through all your illnesses and then in the later, you know, in the the last days of her life, you were able to be, you were all no doubt able to be the nurse to her. Yeah, it was definitely one of those full circle times and you know and we all um because she did manage to go home back home to Batlow for a little while um in that time but she did have a fair bit of time in Sydney at Royal Women's and she did pass away there um but um her one I had one night that and we you know took it in terms of obviously being there um all the time there's always somebody there and I was there during the night one night and it was it was pretty bad she was really really sick um, but still very, very conscious and still very herself. And I think one thing about mum is that we could always have a laugh. It has got us through a lot of very difficult times, but we can always see something funny about what's happening or the ridiculousness of it. Or And, yeah, we had a moment there that both, we just looked at each other and started laughing mm-hmm. because I can't, I can't remember what the thing was, but... I was, she was having to do something that was unpleasant and it was something she'd had to make me do when I was unwell. And it was just, you know, the tables were turned and I was the boss making her do what she had to do. And we just looked at each other and just laughed oh, because, wow. you know, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and that's how things have always been. Can I ask, what are those uh, are those days like when you're nursing your parents who you're not sure is going to survive? What what kind of conversations do you have? Or is it just normal day-to-day trying to carry on as normal as you can? Well, I think we we knew from the start and mum knew from the start as soon because, you know, having a medical background and knowledge, sometimes you know too much, but she knew straight up the doctor was right. There was no, there was no hope that this was it. There was no, there was no pretending at any stage that it wasn't. We didn't, we didn't, I don't, I don't recall anyway ever openly talking with her about it, but 
was just normal. Um, and it was almost an opportunity to spend time together that we don't normally get because, you know, we all live in different towns and we're busy and working and, you know, a phone call now and then. But, yeah, it was I really enjoyed being able to have time to just sit with her and just talk and just be normal. And um, and she did. She had, um, you know, time with each of us that she said different things to each of us and those are, you know, that's personal to each of us um, and we haven't even necessarily shared that with each other. But, um, you know, she did, she said things that she wanted to say and one of her big things was get your health checks, do your, do your mammograms, do your papacies, do, do all of those things. And if you're not sure about something, get it rechecked, ask again because, she was a nurse, and I don't know, I keep saying that, but um, with all her, her experience and knowledge, this caught her unawares. All of her health checks were up to date. Ovarian cancer doesn't come up on a pap smear. So you need to be vigilant about your health, and I think that's one thing she really, to me anyway, um, drove home to me was that you have to be responsible for your health. Yeah, never be afraid to ask for another opinion or don't feel silly getting something checked because hopefully it is nothing. But you'd rather have a doctor roll their eyes and go, you're being overreacting than, you know, go in and you've got two months to live. What a gift. What a gift to be able to give that to her. How long did she survive for Heidi? Seven weeks, um, seven very quick short weeks which is um, not enough time. It was more than enough time for her to be suffering, but it was not enough time, um, you know, and it goes so quickly. And um, thankfully she did, did was able to go back home to Batlow where her and dad were living at the time. Um, and in those seven weeks we had Mother's Day and her birthday, um, which was, yeah, pretty pretty special to have those be able to have those and know that they were the last ones um we just had a beautiful big um outdoor barbecue friends and family anybody and it was without anybody having to say it it was it was her goodbye it was you know anybody that wanted to come and see her could come and see her and she was able she was well enough to go she was well enough to be outside um and to, you know, have all her grandchildren and all of that sort of thing. So, so yes, it was very short, but we were so lucky that we got to have all of those things. We had goodbyes and we had, um, yeah, we had really special moments. And I know, I know that, you know, on that day, you know, I saw her having moments with so many different people um, and she, that's the thing, she, is someone who touched so many lives. You know, people people still come out and and will tell me stories about her, things that she did for them, ways that she helped them. Or she, you know, told me this or said this to me and it, you know, completely changed my perspective on something or it absolutely helped me survive something. She sounds like such a special woman. She was a little bit incredible, a very big loss to a lot of people. During this time, 
were you worried about yourself? And I'm sure you were so focused on your mum, but at the back of your mind, were you thinking, gosh, I hope my own health holds mm-hmm. up for this? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was definitely, definitely thinking that. I was well at the time. Um, and I, I also feel like that is a blessing that mum didn't know I got sick again. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to see that. Um and go through that so like she, as in she didn't have to know that I was unwell and not see that I was okay um I think that would have been really traumatic for her to pass away knowing that I was sick again um so I'm very thankful for that but it wasn't long after that I did did get sick so and it was at the back of my mind because you and it's always always a, an issue you don't you don't want to be a burden. You don't want to put any more on your family and your friends and your loved ones. Like you get tired of being that person um, that, you know, always got a bit of bad news, always, you know, I'll ask how you're going, but I don't know if I really want to know. Um, yeah, you get tired of being that person. Um, so it did It did concern me, um, but also I just had to, you just forget about it. You forget about yourself in those situations. Yeah. Gosh, I hope you strapped yourself in for the ride through Heidi's ups and downs of life. There is more to come. We will be releasing part two of Heidi's story soon. And there is definitely a happy, happy ending. But there are some more upsets along the way for Heidi and her family. But as she says, she is not one bit about pity and not to be dwelled upon because she certainly hasn't in her life. At the beginning of the show, we mentioned that it's Organ Donation Week in Australia. As a part of Donate Life Week, the Australian government's Organ and Tissue Authority has an aim to encourage 100,000 Australians to register for organ donation through the Great Registration Race, which is running for all of July and August. When compared to 2019, there was a 16% decrease in organ donation and registration in 2021 due to COVID. So Donate Life is encouraging people to speak with their families about organ donation and if they are comfortable, to register register themselves. You can find out more at donatelife.gov.au. You can find out more about Heidi Castledon at castledon.co and on Instagram at castledon underscore co. Thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Antola Trading, and stay tuned for part two of Heidi's story coming soon. <laughs>